Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale and today I'm going to be talking to Joseph Eisenberg who has written a fascinating study on Brian De Palma's Stephen King adaptation, Carrie. We'll be going into the film quite deeply and into the book, available on Kindle if you follow the link in the show notes. I also wanted to mention that uh, over the next month or so I'm going to be very busy with film festivals. I'm going to a bunch of them, uh, covering them for Variety and other outlets. So I shall be... Maybe the time of the podcast will slip a little bit. If by any chance there are gaps, I'm going to try and plug them with by reissuing some old episodes, which I don't think have had the love that they deserve. So apologies for that in advance, although if you haven't listened to the old episodes, you might be quite relieved of the opportunity to uh, have a chance to catch up on something you haven't had an opportunity to listen to before. For you go, <laughs> listen to our conversation with me and Joseph Eisenberg. sure what my first experiences were with cinema it seems like the first favorite movie i had when i was like five years old was like the sound of music that's pretty i mean it's like born in oklahoma and my mom and dad had a very stormy relationship they got divorced and then uh sound of music is probably my favorite film and then sometime around 10 years old like they started doing uh uhf channels i don't know if you know what those are but uh these weren't like the regular network TV channels. And so to fill the void, they would just show old movies constantly. Mm. And so I got into old movies when I was like 10 years old. So anything that was made before like 1960, I wanted to, I was on it. Wow. That's, that's a, a, your university of cinema then. Yeah, it was basically, yeah. TV, UHF TV. Then of course, uh, VCRs happened and I got into those. And for a long time, it was kind of prissy and didn't really like like modern films that much because uh i was raised very christian too that's another thing so i was uh so movies seemed very dirty to me but then of course after i hit 50 or 60 i was like bring on the film <laughs> <laughs> and then started really getting get into the film and it's kind of funny because like uh you know the 70s is now really kind of considered the golden age of film and or in america right and uh but in the 80s and the 70s just seemed like such a joke to people my age. You know, Gen X, we were just, we were teens then, and it's just like the stupid hair and the platform shoes and all that disco and stuff. And it wasn't until probably after Tarantino, really, that you started going back and going, wow, these 70s movies were real weird. 
and, and screwed up and interesting. I remember just thinking like flared trousers and disco. Ugh. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then like in the early 70s, around the time that Tarantino started to become big, then people started doing the 70s. And, you know, there's like three phases of 70s. There was like that early the early 90s, 70s, and then a mid to late 90s, 70s. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. But yeah, then you go back and you see like these Altman films and you see like, uh, of course, like Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets. And, uh, and you're like, in the 80s, movies were just so bland and formulaic for the most part except for you know the occasional david Lynch or the terry gilliam or something like that and then you get something really interesting but nothing like what they were doing for like five or six years in the 70s yeah and i think the thing in the 70s is it was major studios were doing it as well it wasn't yeah. just like you weren't having to go to an underground independent american director to to get your jollies you could get them via francis ford coppola <laughs> and they didn't have to put a whole lot of money into it it wasn't really until after spielberg with Jaws that they were like, we're going to pour all the money we can into it to get giant hits. So you can just, you know, pour a few million dollars into a movie and it would be a big hit and they could do all kinds of weird, disturbing stuff and people would flock to see it. Yeah, it's kind of like they the, the when I read the first reactions to things like Jaws and Star Wars, the, the the initial reception was this is an anomaly. This is so crazy that this has happened. You know, we released a film in the summer and it was huge. How did that work? I know that's weird. And then they kind of make it into, no, that's the formula. That's what we're going to do. But it was a it was a kind of lucky strike when it first happened. Right. But we were like, I mean, I was probably six, five or six when Jaws came out. So it kind of seemed like it was always that. Through my, and I didn't realize that that kind of started that. And of course, you know, Star Wars happened. And, you know, of course I was big on that. But that was one of those things where, see, I felt like we should have grew out of Star, Star Wars. And it's weird to me that people are still seeing them and that they want to see weird, serious versions of them like that. What's that one that the critics just love, The Last Jedi? The Last Jedi or something, right? And it's just this huge, glossy colossus that's so self-serious. And you're just like, why would they do this? At least like the first one, I'm not that big on Star Wars, but at least it's kind of got a little clunky comic charm to it. It's not like, also like, what happened to The Force, man? Like, the last time I watched a Star Wars movie, because I hadn't watched any of these new ones until Last Jedi, because the critics just, I want to be mean about this, but they just jizzed all over it, right? Yeah. And so I was like, now The Force can bring you back to life? And The Force can project your soul all the way across the universe and do fake versions of you? And I'm like, I remember when it was just like a little telekinesis, and now, yeah, a little telekinesis and you could like read minds maybe. Oh, and a ghost could sort of appear to you, but you could still die. Yeah, yeah. Now you can't even die. No one died. Absolutely. <laughs> like, what is, what is that? Whatever the script needs is what the Force can do. And the only reason Carrie Fisher died is because she died in real life. <laughs> you know, like in the movie, she gets blown out into space and she uses the force to suck herself big back into a spaceship and brings herself back to life. And I'm like, no, I refuse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're in Superman territory. Superman, you know, spinning around the world and turning back time territory. All right. Speak of, speaking of a thing that was an unusual thing at the time and now it's just... Everything. But I mean, speaking of your, your, you know, when you were mentioning your background earlier, uh, obviously the thing that pinged with me is that we're going to discuss today your book on Carrie, the, the Stephen King adaptation by Brian De Palma. And for many people, arguably the best Stephen King adaptation, um, certainly of that first bunch. Um, is, uh, how how did you come across the 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 film and the book? Was it was it which one came first for you? Okay, it was the movie first, and I was like, probably it was probably when it was first showed on TV, and I remember nothing about the film except for the end when Carrie's hand comes out of the grave and grabs them. And I was watching with my brother and sister then, and they that happened, and then they just screamed. It went screaming in horror to my grandparents' bedroom, and they had to sleep with them for a week. And then later, a friend of mine watched it on uh, VHS, and this was still when I was kind of coming out of the Christian upbringing I had, which kind of connects with Margaret White, I guess, because my mom is very fundamentalist. And uh, I was like, well, this is still. <laughs> and then later, after high school, the shell shock in, of high school, I saw it a couple of years after that. And I saw it again at a college campus because I live in a college town. And um, I went and saw it at one of the English department 
showings of it and i was just blown away actually i first do you know the movie sisters yes yeah okay so i've seen that at first i kind of dismissed De palma as like your regular hitchcock ripoff like people often say and then i saw sisters and i just thought that was the coolest movie mm. and i watch it over and over again so then when carrie showed i thought i would give that a shot again and then i just thought that was amazing and thought it was technically better although i really still love sisters a lot yeah sisters is, is i i was i Hesitate to say underrated because I think Brian De Palma has been is is staging a big comeback at the moment. I think he's being reassessed. I, I felt like after I did because by the time I wrote my Carrie book, I felt like he was not very appreciated because uh, I wrote the book in two thousand nine, and right. then it seemed like almost immediately after that, Carrie's reputation came back up again, and now people really like, which I'm really glad about. Maybe I helped. I hope. So when did you read the book? Then was a did you read the book afterwards as a so I read the book, let's see, I watched it on VHS and then a year later, because a friend of mine that made me watch it on VHS, he really loved Stephen King. And so he had me read the book. And at first I really liked the book more than the movie until I rethought it again. And then I was like, then I went back and reread the book because I loved the movie so much. And I was like, you know, I think this movie's better mm. than the book. And uh, so, yeah, then I read the book then. And then I read it mostly just because I wanted to have more of the movie. Yeah, controversial opinion I have that, that Stephen King makes uh, his his the films based on his books are so good because of the the, the weakness of the books. Sometimes there's you know, The Shining I think is a, is an amazing movie. The book uh -huh. I think is good, but it's, it's yeah. the, there are weaknesses in the book that the movie kind of uh, improves vastly. Well, it's interesting because they have different like Kubrick has a, and De Palma too to a certain degree. They have different talents like i think the talent that stephen king has is with character right mm -hmm. so it's like when he gives you the character of jack torrance in the book it's very compelling the alcoholism how he almost beat his kid the terrible marriage that he and his wife have but the weakness i think is in well it's in a couple of places one is that i think there's a certain derivative quality to his um use of the supernatural elements like you can just feel where he's pulling from everything and he writes what was writing really really fast like you have to remember like that's like a 400 something page book and if you're to believe his interviews he had to have written that book in two and a half weeks mm. Mm. do you know what i mean he was writing ten thousand words a day according to him and so there's there's technological flaws in the in the book that are not in the movie like uh for instance, it's well, there's still kind of one in the movie too, which is but you know how in the movie and in the book, I don't know if you remember, uh, the ghost of Grady lets Jack out of that uh, food pantry. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So if he can do that, oh, in the book, there's a thing with a boiler that blows up and Jack is chasing down Danny and then he realizes he has to get back to that boiler and, and let out the steam. And you're like, no, he doesn't. Grady can just go down there and do it himself. Right. Yeah, but that's yeah. something you wouldn't think of if you wrote it in two weeks. And so Kubrick, of course, has taken all that silliness out and has come up with a whole new way to do supernaturalism in it. It's like this weird, linkless, hypnotic, kind of like overlit staring thing that he does. <laughs> and whereas De Palma in the film of Carrie, his he's he has much more of an interest in style and in like split perspectives and in division to like keep pulling your focus to different places. And also like he really wanted Carrie's power to be like a poltergeist, right? Whereas Stephen King wants it to be this deliberate thing that she exercises and uses. And I think that really changes a lot of it. And I think that they both, I think they both have more of an interest in style. And I think that heightens the effectiveness of the supernatural elements in both Kubrick and De Palma. Whereas I think really Stephen King is a character writer and likes melodrama. That's my take. I, I absolutely agree with the melodrama bit. I mean, especially the ending of The Shining, where it's sort of like, um, Danny, Danny, save yourself. And he sort of sacrifices himself and beats himself to death <laughs> with a, a croquet mallet, you know? And it's just like. Which, and by the way, like speaking of that, I don't know if you remember a weird thing in the book, too, is that Wendy manages to kill Jack at one point. And, you know, in the scene in the movie where he's like, pushing her up the stairs and then she hits him and he gets knocked out. But in the book, she stabbed him in the back with a knife and then he gets back up and is like, you killed me. And then goes after her and you're like, again, if the hotel can do all that, then what's the whole point to why it needs Danny? <laughs> it's like, there's a logic. Cause like, I'm not sure that Stephen King thought through the logic of what is the point 
to what the hotel's doing. Like, it seems like the unwritten idea is that Danny's got the psychic power, and if the hotel can absorb him into it, it can have it, but it can't personally kill him. It needs Jack to do the work for it. But if it can do all this extra crap, why can't it just kill Danny? I think Stephen King reminds me of Dickens in that he writes amazing beginnings and amazing I sets. Have thought of those two. This is the first time someone's compared the two. Um, he, he, he sets up amazing situations, but about three quarters of the way through the book, you can tell he's got his eye on the next book. And uh, and in in Dickens's case, this was literal. He was he would be writing the last chapters of one book while he was writing the first chapters of his next to appear in magazines. So he would actually be you know be publishing them concurrently uh, and simultaneously. And that's uh, that's what what Stephen King. I, I love the story about him writing Cujo during one of his. Uh, you know, uh-huh. That's al- a great story. Alcoholic <laughs> moments, and he just completely forgets. It is like I don't even remember writing this book. Which, by the way, considering how long it is, he probably wrote it in six days. And it's a, it's actually a pretty good book. I, I think it's a really effective, nasty thriller. You know? Yeah, I liked it. It was one of again. I think that one works a little bit better than some of his ones because it focuses more on the melodrama of the bad marriage, the mom. Of course, I related to it because it had a scary dog in it. See the scar guy here. This is from a dog. Yeah, when I was uh, three and a half years old, an Afghan hound tried to rip my face off. Jeez, jeez. Oh, now I could see Cujo being a bit triggering in that case. Yeah, but I love dogs, weirdly, even big ones. But I agree, Cujo was pretty fun. I mean, I would not consider I would not consider Mr. King to be a first-rate writer, but he's got talent. I think sometimes, like maybe he should sort of slow it down, think it through. A couple more rereads, a couple more right. re- redraft it, the story a little bit. All right. Like, again, like, you know, both the Palm and Kubrick, they work those films over. Like, the Palm worked on that film for over a year before he was even able to get it done. So he spent so much more time working on that story than King did. I mean, King, I think, and he wrote a, he was teaching at the time and he wrote a draft of what was teaching and then over his Christmas bake, added on all this extra stuff that made it long enough to be a novel, <laughs> which of course then King, then De Palma took all of that out. He just wanted the story of Carrie. Yeah, and you, you, you're you really good in you sort of tracing the sort of genesis of Carrie and actually how Carrie White is based on, uh, I think you say two people that, that, that Stephen King knew, yeah. although sort of two conveniently dead people. So that no <laughs> right, exactly. And he, and he changes a little, like, I don't know if you noticed from my thing that I had fun showing how he changes the story all the time because he's a novelist that, like, you know, wants to tell a good story. Mm-hmm. So, but yes, he uh, he claimed in one version that uh, one of the, the one of the girls was based on a student he went to school with, and she turns up in another one of his novels from that time period too. And then the other one was supposed to be a student that he had. And yeah, one of them in one version of his story she hung herself, and another version she shot herself. They they go to a different school. You don't know them exactly. But the main important thing I think is that they are. Whether they're real or not, they're expressions of King's sense of his own not fitting in. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, again, like one thing people have never noticed is that he gave Carrie his own birthday. So it's a self portrait <laughs> as well. I think so, even though he tried to kind of deny that, you know, he changed his views on her. Like originally, he claimed that she was a good person who was used by everyone and pushed to the point that she went to. And then later, he started saying that he never liked this character. And then she was like one of the Columbine people almost. Yeah, which is funny because he, he, one of his Richard Bachman books, um, I think it's called Rage. That has a version of one of those girls in it. Oh, okay, that's that's where it connects. Yeah, and that is definitely a, that's a, a school shooter goes into holds holds his classmates. Const- it really does not read well anymore. That book I read it a couple no, of years ago. He pulled it from publication after Columbine because it's so directly a kind of sympathetic portrayal of somebody who's essentially a school shooter. Yeah, one of the school shooters. Only it's a male one. I think it's interesting too the change of instead of having a male school rage filled school shooter, I think it's interesting his change of gender and then making it more about this kind of um, ambivalent sense of needing to fit in and not being. Able you know what I mean? A girl needs to be pretty, but when she does, when she is pretty, then she's just, you know, buying into all the BS conventions of what being a girl is supposed to be. 
just to circle back a second to that idea of him sharing the birthday with Carrie, in a way, it, to me, and this being his first novel, it feels like it is a perfect symbol of what a young writer is like in that you sort of walk around destroying everybody you hate with your mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he went way further with the destruction than the movie does. That's another thing that's different about is, is that he loves to pour on the destruction. In your book, you, you explain the genesis of the of the actual movie and how Brian De Palma gets involved. And one of the brilliant yes. things I think about this period is that there are these movies that we absolutely identify a director with. So Carrie is... Absolutely, quintessentially a, a De Palma movie. Taxi yes. Driver is quintessentially a Scorsese movie. You know, and and um, you know, uh, and all all the all the uh, Apocalypse Now quintessentially. But all of those films had different directors. George Lucas was going to do Apocalypse Now. Uh, Taxi Driver, I can't remember who was going to do that, but there was some. De Palma was, thought about ah, it. De Palma, exactly. Yes, and um, and he was going to he was up for cruising as well. Right, yes, Friedkin's film, yeah. So there's this sort of musical chairs going on, which is just like fantasy, a, a Hollywood fantasy of what would that have looked like, you know? And they considered Ken Russell for Carrie, mm. which I, I think he would have been an interesting choice. The closest, they thought of Roman Polanski, I think, uh, was Cooper asked for that? No, Cooper was asked for The Exorcist, right? Mm, I think so, yes. And you know that the producer of Carrie had originally been the producer on The Exorcist, and uh, his name's Paul Monash. And uh, he tried to wrest stuff away from William Friedkin, who didn't like it. And so William Friedkin got him kicked off that project. And so one of the actresses claimed that the, that the Palma wouldn't let Stephen King on the set of the movie uh, while he was making Carrie. And I'm not, he denied that that was the case. Um, but then again, he denied things that weren't that he did do. <laughs> but I don't know about that. And I wondered if maybe it was Paul Monash who didn't want King on the set because of how how uh, Peter Blatty had treated him. Right, right. So he just had an allergy to to, to writers at that point. Uh-huh. I mean, I would, as someone who's interviewed Brian De Palma, I would definitely say take everything he says with a very large pinch of salt. <laughs> I, I remember interview. <laughs> I, I asked him about... Um, the giallo, the you know, as a as an influence on his work, Dario Argento's uh, sort of because of Dress to Kill. Yeah, exactly. And he was the film that he was uh, promoting was it was the one with Rachel McAdams and um... Passion. Exactly, and uh, it's very giallo. It's got split screens. It's got black black. Oh, yeah. black I love that. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, the you weird know, masks. Exactly, and and you know, it, it was sort of like, oh, um, and he uh, premiered it in Venice. So I was like, oh, is it nice to be in Venice? Thought of the home, you know, Italy, the home of the giallo, with this sort of neo giallo. And he said, I've never seen a giallo. Well, that's a lie. <laughs> I know, but it's such a brazen lie. It's almost like he's testing you. <laughs> it's almost like he's saying, are you gonna? Do you want some of me? Do you want some of this? <laughs> yeah, I've heard lots of people. I hadn't ever thought to think of him in connection to Giallo until I started reading people saying that they thought Dress to Kill was like a Giallo. Because if you read his description of his influences, he has specifically picked Bunuel as that his influence for that movie. Which I, at first I was like, Bunuel, why him? And then I realized when I saw Belle du Jour that that's what he was talking about. Where he just took the, the character of, the main character from that who's the wife and then the prostitute and split her into two different characters who are sort of pulled together and then mixed it with Psycho. De Palma gets involved with the, um, you know, after this merry-go-round of different names, gets involved with the making of Carrie. And and as you say, he he's preparing this film for quite a long period. Like a uh, year, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What what takes so long? What What's what's involved with that process? Okay, so the two, the two things I got were that it was um, it was finance. And he had like, he was trying, one of the reasons is that he was trying to tell them it was going to cost like a million point seven and they wanted him to bring it in a million five. And he says that he told them a million seven and so they were like, well, see, see you, sir, that's fine. And so then he just went and told them what they wanted. And then they got some kind of tax shelter to eventually finance the movie and then the financing finally came through. But during that time, he was casting it, and you know, famously that he was working with George Lucas, who was casting Star Wars at the same time. So he got the runoff people that Lucas didn't want. 
Right, like Amy Irving was supposed to, had tried out for um, Princess Leia. I think she would have been a great Princess Leia. And uh, what's her name? Carrie Fisher was, you know, tried out for Carrie White. What point does Sissy Spacek enter the picture? Because again, in a, you know, now, now we see Carrie and we think it could be nobody yeah, you're else. Like, who else could it be? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the art printer, there were two art directors on the show. I have William Kenny and Jack Fisk, although it was really pretty much Jack Fisk. And Fisk is very, uh, is like one of the great uh, art directors for films. Like he, he did Badlands, which is where he met Sissy Spacek and they got married. And um, he also, like you've seen Arrested Head, right? Well, Fisk is the man in the machine that we see in that movie. And the <laughs> two of them, when they did their regular movies, would actually, Carrie probably helped find It's Eraserhead, Head, which I think is also one of the amazing things about that movie. So Fisk does not, have you seen Phantom of the Paradise? Yes, yeah, the musical. Okay, so Fisk designed that. And Sissy Spacek helped him because she didn't have anything going on at the time. And she almost got the role, or was at least up for the role that Jessica Harper played. But weirdly, they didn't think she could sing, which is weird because she'd actually begun as a country singer mm. and, and before she became came on to it. So anyway, Jack Fisk was pushing Sissy Spacek at De Palma, and she was up for several of the roles. Like one of the roles, she was almost up for Nancy Allen's role, playing the, the bitchy character. But De Palma didn't think she quite fit that. And she really wanted to be that, so she just kept haranguing him about, about being Carrie and uh, put Vaseline in her hair and dress like as dowdy as she thought Carrie should be for it. And um, and um, I'm not sure. What, okay, De Palma says that they, I forget the name of the woman they originally were going to have for Carrie. Um, she kind of got erased from the history of the movie, I guess, mm. because Sissy Space said, was that for an Oscar? So it was kind of rude to bring her up. But um, when they compared their two tryouts, you know, Sissy Space had just, according to De Palma, wiped the floor with. The other actresses and so he knew she was the one and put and pushed supposedly he, he told me the studios were a little iffy about taking her but i wasn't couldn't get out of when i talked to the studio people why they claimed that they didn't interfere with uh the united artists didn't interfere with uh those kind of decisions with the film as long as they were within budget but that's not true from all the they did interfere and stuff like that but anyway so they let sissy say to do it I can't believe. I think films in uh, studios tend to interfere with with, with stuff regardless of budget. Um, I mean, your one. I think one thing that I've noticed is that often, if a studio is direct is um, distracted with another big production, then that's the time you'll get let alone. You know, I think Raging <clears throat> Bull. There's some story about the studio having real problems with another big budget production, so it was like Raging Bull just flew under the wire. You know, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> wasn't on their radar at all. So he could just, Scorsese could just do what he liked. So the opening of, of Carrie is one of the most striking and, and you know, I mean, a, a girl having her period in the shower and the, the sort of brutality and all the rest of it, especially coming from a filmmaker who often gets cast as a sort of misogynist or someone who delights in in uh, filming women in, in, in peril. Um, or, or lasciviously, if you if you wish, um, how how did that sort of come about? Did 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 the Palmer have a lot of pushback in that uh, with that scene? It's interesting we ask that because, like, one of the things I thought about that scene is I think that may be the first time that a, that they've ever shown that's ever been shown graphic menstruation. You know right. what I mean? I don't think that's ever appeared in American films before. Maybe in European art movies or something. I haven't come across it. So I did ask. Uh, the vice president at United Artists about this, and she said they were worried about it, but she mm -hmm. didn't say much more. She didn't seem to want to talk very much. So, um, yeah, but weirdly, it was a very cheap film, though, even at the time, it was a very low-budget film, and United Artists had a lot, like you were saying before, they had bigger productions going on that year, like uh, what was the name of that movie that was about um, the folk singer? It actually comes from my state but i can't remember his name now but there was a giant big production bound bound to heaven the woody guthrie yes. yeah yes the woody guthrie movie was really their big thing and so his yeah. movie was just his movie was just considered like the was a little bit bitter about how he felt like his movie was just considered a trashy horror movie right right yeah well i mean in a way nowadays you would think of carrie as one of the prime candidates for lifting the genre 
you know, into yes. the into you know Oscar nominations and and things like that, which, yeah. which you don't usually get for horror films. No, and I and I often call it the Citizen Kane of horror movies. Yeah, right. There you go. Which yeah. you can do. It literally has references to Citizen Kane. It seems to be the most filmy of films in that it he the Palmer sort of throws every technique he has. Um, including the kitchen sink, quite literally, at the at the screen. Yeah, he took everything he felt he had been learning over the past several years and, and used it in the film. But one thing that's, like, not true, like the British Film Institute um, and, and a few British critics that I read in general seemed to feel that the movie was only, like, all style and it didn't relate thematically. But the way I analyzed it, it seemed to me that all the styles and technical things, you know, built in a thematic way, even like the split screen that you see at the prom is like built out of all of these uh, split perspectives that he's constantly showing and your split understanding of Carrie's situation. Cause we know a lot more than she does right. as, as things build. And I felt like his style like brings it out. And it's interesting cause he uses almost an expressionistic style but the sets and stuff aren't weird like in the expressionist film. So there's a, a realism to it at the same time that it's very stylized. Yeah, oddly, there's a kind of almost sort of documentary element to, you know, you feel like they're living in real environments. You feel like the school is actually a school. Um, yes, it was a school. Right, well, there you go. <laughs> and in fact, one, one thing I want to point out before we lose this is one of the things that's interesting and I think accidentally adds an interesting stylistic element to the movie is that De Palma used two different cinematographers. Like he fired his first cinematographer, uh, Isidore Mankowski, I believe, is mm -hmm. that, that guy's name? And he does all the stuff you see of the girls in the school at first. And De Palma didn't like it the way that he was filming the girls and he didn't think it made them look attractive enough, even though it's silly, they're gorgeous. Um, and But the interesting thing is, is then when he got a second cinematographer, uh, oh, I can't remember that guy's name, I'm sorry, guys. Um, you know, that guy uses much richer, more saturated colors and all the stuff at Carrie's house has more of that guy's texture to it. So you get this like realistic school setting and then this gothic home setting. You know what I mean? Yes. And so I think that, that creates an interesting effect, I think. And the gothic uh, sort of home setting, as you say, is much more stylized. Mario Tosi was the... Um director who, yes. who came in and Pino Donaggio of course does the music and he's a, yes. a, a brilliant Italian uh, composer um, probably aware of his music for Don't Look Now one of the yes the that was how he got the got the role was because uh, Bernard Herman was supposed to do the music for Carrie as he'd done for Sisters um, but he died right after finishing his taxi driver music and so De Palma didn't know who to go to and a movie critic who worked at Time, I believe, that he was friends with, uh, suggested Dinaggio because of the music for Don't Look Now. And I think is like maybe the best composer for De Palma because he's beautiful, like you said, but it's also like Dinaggio also has an understanding of a kind Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Kind of like corniness as well. Mm. And so he can bring some of that corniness into the, into the movies and it helps add to like a postmodern texture where De Palma wants you to pull you in, but makes fun of what you're seeing at the same time. 
not as much in not as much in carry as in like body double, but in body double you can really see it. I absolutely agree. And it's it goes straight back to what we were talking about in terms of the 70s. That corniness is absolutely on point. If I listened to a Pino Donaggio soundtrack in the 80s, I would be I would be thinking, oh, this is way too syrupy and, you know, but now listening to it, I think, oh, this is so wonderful, so evocative. <laughs> or like the way he uses like electronic elements sometimes or those breathy female choruses. Uh, it's very funny, but it works. The school is set up and you have this situation which Carrie is being uh, bullied um, as a you know, as a response to her uh, first period, which is an absolute nightmare. It takes a real, a very real nightmare, very easily easily um, established nightmare, real world, I mean, uh, and, and then extrapolates it into this revenge power fantasy uh, that's going to come. But it sort of, it progresses and it's so um, Machiavellian, the, 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 the girls who are plotting against her. But and what's interesting though is like again it changed from like the way it is in the book and the way it was in the original script that uh, uh, Cohen wrote. The Irving character Sue Snell only joins the fray at the end just because the girls get going. But in the movie, if, when you watch it again and put, pay attention carefully, she's one of the first ones to, to initiate it, which changes like the moral meaning in, of the character. Because one of the things that De Palma would say, and it's interesting because so many critics like. Uh, Kim Newman and others have taken the film to have an almost simplistic moralism. And I don't think that it does. And De Palma himself talks frequently that he considered it to be very relativistic and that each of the characters was acting on what they thought was right, but it was all diametrically opposed. Like the mother seriously thinks that it that carries power is evil and that she has to stop her, even though, you know, that makes her kind of monstrous. And and the and the school kids are just being school kids. Basically, they're not. I mean, they're not evil. They're certainly cruel. But that's yes. that's kind of goes with the territory. And but and it's important to remember again. Amy Irving is doing what she thinks is right when she has her boyfriend take care of the prom to make up for what she did. But that essentially initiates what leads to the deaths of everyone that she knows. And the gym teacher, Miss Collins, played wonderfully by Betty Buckley. You know she she feels bad about the way she herself thinks about Carrie and tries to make up for it by really going hard on those girls, but it just has, you know, the opposite effect ultimately. And that's what I think is so cool about the movie. Like none of the other versions of Carrie have handled the gym teacher as ambivalently as the Palmas does, you know, like she doesn't die in the book. She didn't die in the original screenplay. She doesn't die in any of the remakes. Only the Palma kills her in that horrible way. <laughs> I, I think that's actually in that sort of absence of moral moralism, in the sense that people yes. get people get punished um, in a way which is utterly regardless and arbitrary. You know, it's regardless of their sins, they will get it either punished far too much, you know, disproportionately, or just punished when they haven't actually done anything wrong. Yeah, and I think that the Palma is sort of using this whole high school thing as a kind of uh, metaphor for like the system. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, it's kind of out of that counterculture thing. And you have to remember the movie does the first like full scene in the movie is not actually the shower scene, but it's the overhead shot of the volleyball game. The girls are playing a volleyball game. And De Palma uses that as a metaphor for how the social politics of that high school are like a game. And then this movie is about what happens when you stop playing that game. Yes. And, and what was sort of surprising as well um, is that you you bring this up in the book. Some of the actors actually didn't think they were the baddies or they were doing doing anything particularly bad. Nancy Ellen, yeah, she thought of herself. She thought she and John Travolta were like the comic relief. And it wasn't until she saw the movie that she realized what a what a, a bitch she was in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny. And it's also one of the differences too between the book and the, the movie is that in the book, her character has like 140 IQ. And whereas in the movie, she seems very, very, you know, dumb. <laughs> she herself, I mean, Nancy Allen referred to her character as being kind of dumb. One thing that shines out about both the movie and the way, and the way you describe it in the book is that, that it's really built around these very big set pieces, and especially the, the prom 
at the end. If yes. Even if you've not seen the movie, you've seen that part of the movie, uh, either yes. pa- parodied or or, um, or or in some way referenced by other films. That, that The process of making... Uh, that strikes me as the part of the movie where you see why Brian De Palma wanted to make the film. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's like uh, the most surprising thing, and De Palma was straightforward with me about it, was when... I had been researching the film. I read that he kept, he made reference to uh, the bridge on the River Kwai and how the scene with the train, the bridge blows up is to him like this perfect symbol of how, of all the different characters' perspectives and how that too is a movie where each of the characters thinks they're doing the right thing, but it's diametrically opposed. And I had remembered that he talked a lot about Kubrick's Barry Lyndon when he made that movie Redacted. And when I saw it, I noticed that he used music from Barry Lyndon and has these shots that are just like some of the ones Kubrick did in that. So when I talked to De Palma, I asked him, I, I went back and rewatched The Bridge on the River Kwai, and I realized that the whole sequence where the bridge blows up is redone in the, the scene where Sue Snell sees the rope going up to the blood. And he basically redid that whole scene using doing it with the blood. I mean, it's not that way in the screenplay. And I asked him and basically admitted that that was true, that he was... He did rework the bridge blowing up. I was I was really surprised. <laughs> and he said yes. And he said no to almost everything else. It's such a I mean, it's such a strange parallel to have. It's so generically diverse. Until you think about the way that until you think about the way that um that uh like when you go back to the scene where Miss Collins, the gym teacher, is like punishing the girls, it is very martial and very military. And again, I think this hits his counterculture idea of the system. You know what I mean? So there is a sense that, yeah, I know you're like this movie about men in, in the military, and it doesn't seem to fit like this film about girls in high school. Mm. But I I think it does. And he's using each of the different girls and Miss Collins' views of Carrie as like this, uh, or sort of like... Uh, reflected in the way this unfolds because you have all their various perspectives like miss collins thinks that sue is there to get at carrie because carrie's kissing tommy and not seeing the thing with the rope underneath the underneath the underneath the stage and sue smells just so happy at first until she realizes what's going on and it takes on this weird nightmare perspective actually like it better in his movie than the way that david lean did it and david lean did it amazingly if you're going to steal off anybody steal off the best yeah, and everyone's always calling him a ripoff of Hitchcock, and I'm like, he rips off from everybody. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Not just Hitchcock. There's Penwell, there's Wells, David Lean. And I really feel like I'm the first person that ever found that David Lean thing. So I was very proud of myself. And and that final scene, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier as well about thinking of Carrie as the filmmaker uh, or as the writer. You know, uh, the, the the camera starts to be directed by Carrie. You know, she's the one who yes. seems to be, you know, s- doing the swish pans and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, because in the, the first part of the movie, Carrie is constantly shown in frames, and she's dominated by the frames, and they, mm-hmm. she seems to be squashed by them from the in the beginning, and then by the time she gets to the prom, she's like controlling the frame, literally breaking the film frame in two, just with her gaze, and and directing the special effects. You know, she's the one look look over there, look over here. You know. Yes, exactly. Um, De Palma says now that he wishes he hadn't done the split screen in that sequence, but I'm like, thematically, it seems perfect. And I like this idea of, you know, she looks on, she looks at thing, looks on one side of the screen, and on the other side of the screen, it does the stuff she wants. It's really great, I think. And I, thinking about the the religious element and how um, Carrie sort of gets revenge on her on her mother, the sort of matricide, uh-huh. which is is something else that you don't really see much. I mean, it, it it is a replay, I suppose, of Psycho to some degree, but the the dutiful daughter killing the mother, you have to. I can't think of many examples. Heavenly Creatures with uh, Peter Jackson. Uh, oh yeah, Kate Winslet uh, film. That's a good one. Yeah, but I mean, that's kind of the only one I can think of, really. Of, uh, of this particular crime. Oh yeah, and also the bizarre way that she kills her mother like she's Saint Sebastian. That's very weird. And and the uh, and Piper Laurie has an orgasm when she dies, which is very bizarre. And that was the actress's idea to do that. The sexual root of of religious frenzy. Right, and it fits perfectly with the whole movie. 
Yeah, yeah. What you're repressing comes back. Yes, and um, and uh, just another film reference that, of course, the, apparently De Palma got the idea for that sort of from Throne of Blood, the uh, that Japanese filmmaker guy. What's his name? Kurosawa. Kurosawa. Yeah, when uh, his version of Macbeth gets like. Uh, stuck with all these arrows that gave him this idea for all those knives and kitchen utensils but it's really nicely transformed because of course it's perfect that she gets killed with the implements of woman's work yes yes sort of the domestic exactly the sort of like again the female the repression it seems a lot of people think the movies were misogynistic but to me it seems like it seems like it's really making like a not so much like a because horror movies don't work in this way a lot of people take them. They think that if you feel bad about what you're seeing, then the movie is saying that's wrong. Like many film critics or reviewers at the time thought that Carrie having a bad time when she had her menstruation meant that De Palma himself thought menstruation was bad. And uh, I'm trying to remember like Kim Newman, I think, and several other critics from the time period believed that the movie that the palma was in some sense on the mom's side <laughs> mm, mm, yeah that, like that that's insane that's a very weird take yes and it's but the thing is that what the palma is doing and what a good horror movie does is it doesn't tell you that something is good or bad but it pulls out your anxieties mm. like you may be afraid about stuff like that or you may you know, you don't want to think about girls menstruating. And so he plays with this, you know, gross ick factor to bring out things that we think that we didn't realize we thought. Do you know what I mean? It's not a it's not a condemnation of that sort of thing. And it's not for it. It's like it it works you through it, I guess, is what I mean. I think there's a lot to be said as well for visibility. Just the simple fact that we don't have any... It's the 1970s, and this is like the first time we see anything like this. Yes. You know what I mean? It's 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 something which happens to women every month for, for exactly, you know, a yeah. significant portion of their lives. And it's not... You know, it's it's never portrayed. If it was happening to men, it would be... Uh, you know, it would be... It would have its own genre. And of course, it's important to note that it's like this is something that was written, directed by uh, guys. Like Stephen yeah. King wrote it, Cohen wrote the screenplay, and De Palma, you know, directed SpaceX how to act. Like she was like, "How am I supposed to react to this?" Because you know, as a woman, this just happens to her all the time. <laughs> but De Palma's like, "You need to be hit like it's like you're being hit by a Mack truck." So this is to a certain degree you know, De Palma's dealing with, like, male anxieties about this as much as, like, what the woman feels. It, it, it kind of fuses together. Like, that's why the that scene is so sexy in general, building up to it. Like, that's... A woman wouldn't film that shower scene that way. Yeah, it's kind of like, this is this is bodies and this is also bodies. And, uh, and I think sort of, like, often when you read... I don't know if you've read very much film writing on horror films or academic feminist studies have like had insights about what I how I think these kinds of movies work but sometimes they go a slightly wrong like they think that that these filmmakers hate women and that these are like sort of subtextual fantasies about the hostility men feel towards women because of their sexual power and so that it's a way of like killing for that sort of in slasher films but I think what I think what maybe these women don't always understand is that we men often have ambivalent feelings about our sexuality and that we desire something, but we also think we shouldn't desire something. And so these kinds of films at their best will play on our own fears of our desires as well as like evoking them. So there's as much guilt involved as the kind of misogyny they have. I felt like I had to kind of like separate myself from feminists in general because they really didn't like the poem very much. And I really like it. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think there is a, a way you can, there is a feminist reading of Carrie, and I think there's a feminist reading of, of a lot of De Palma's work. Um, the, I mean, De Palma's always been like this, hasn't he? I mean, you remember his yes. uh, his racial politics, um, you know, his first films were extremely sort of um, provocative, and, and they Very were in your yeah. face, you know? Yes. But the, the thing is, like, it's not, again, like, a good movie isn't isn't just like I feel this way about something. It's like he 
you can you can have several feelings at once and the ambivalence ambivalences are a big part of like what's true about something right so it's like you can be feminist but you can because like stephen king talked about how he felt like his book terry was a male's reaction to the advent of women's liberation that it was like it's a good thing but he also felt that it he also had fears and anxieties about what that might take away from him i think the movie is less like that but that it's not wrong to try to dramatize that a bit like sometimes you get the feeling from feminists that you shouldn't that you shouldn't dramatize the problems but the but by dramatizing the problems that's where you see them Absolutely. I think it's a, a, in the nature of ideology generally to narrow the world. And, and it's in the it's it's the dynamic of art is to is to broaden the world and to to make things more um, nuanced and complicated. Um, and so within that, you're you're there's always going to be a tension between ideology and art. I think there's always going to be, a, you know, the best art will should make everybody uncomfortable. It shouldn't just be about making you feel. Yep, I totally agree with that. Right. And think about like of all of the film brats that, you know, De Palma's films with George Lucas, Martin Scorsese, Coppola, like none of them made a film about women the way that this is like, this is all about women. I mean, it's like, and it's like, strong women women having moral ethical decisions it treats what happens to the girls like it actually matters <laughs> yeah yeah passes the bechdel test yeah it's like well i mean a lot of it is over dating but yeah it's like the amy irving's trying to do the right thing betty buckley's just such a strong liberated woman kind of character i i, I don't know i've always thought that i mean like martin scorsese's all their movies seem to be mostly about guys for the most part and it's kind of ironic the De Palma liked doing films about women, but because of the way he did them, he felt pushed out of doing that. How do you rate the sort of the impact of Carrie? Or I mean, we, we you referenced earlier the 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 recent remake, recent, not particularly recent remake, but that seemed yeah, to, like ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, that seemed to come and go without touching the sides. Yeah, because again, like one problem is they're using actors who are the right age. One of the good things about the Palmas version is they're all like in their mid twenties, so he can do what he needs to do with them where it comes to nudity and graphicness. Whereas you can't do that with Chloe Grace Metz because she was like sixteen when she did that movie. Mm -hmm. So all of like the sexual aspects of the of Carrie are pretty much those punches are all pulled in the remake. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing like in the opening when she has her period. I think she has her period in a swimming pool, so you can't even see it. You know, and then. Uh, the thing where she kills her mom is just none of that stuff has any kind of impact because they don't want to be anti-religious either. Whereas, you know, De Palma went all the way into Benuel territory. It's so fascinating how something that's, that's more recent feels more old-fashioned. It, yes, it's weird. And I, I don't know how to explain it, but for the most part, movies have gotten a lot more... I guess because like you can see pornography so easily on the internet that maybe people don't feel like they need to see sex in movies as much i'm not sure why would you be interested in taking another film and and having giving it this this kind of attention because i think you do a brilliant job here I'd, I'd love to see you do another book like this i mean like I, my favorite film is taxi driver i would love to and there's stuff about that movie that's never come out before but it's been so written about i'm not sure that it would be something that someone was up for maybe that's possible something like i might like to do something like that but generally speaking I'm a, i tend to write fiction i'm a fiction writer right what what genre of fiction are you writing well i mean it's like not really in i mean i, I generally i guess it would be considered sort of literary-ish mm. but um but i have been working on like a really giant paranoid occult horror story for a long time i thought it would be interesting to take something like the theory you've seen the theory right palma movie Yes. Okay. Yes. So I thought a story like that, or Firestarter, or or what was that one that Cronenberg did, Scanners? You know, yes. yeah. take a story like that and do it, but then like research it like a historical novel. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got all of this research on the history of intelligence and war, and just I've probably read a hundred books researching this this book, but it's still in an exploitation style, and you know, it involves like a you know, government and occult and monster shit. But I, it's funny, the more research I did on all the creepy crap that our government has done in experiments, the more I began to feel I wasn't being going far enough. 
last question, Joe. What's your uh, what would be a recommended film book that our listeners could uh, could go and explore? Okay, I thought about this. You want just one? Is that what you said? You could, yeah. You, or you can have more than one. Everyone does. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say since you know you and I had an exchange about Lolita not too long ago, mm. I was thinking about a book by Alfred Apple Jr., who's an academic called Nabokov's uh, uh, Dark Cinema. Mm. which is a really interesting book where he sort of examines uh, Nabokov's novels in terms of the tricks and tropes that he used in films by talking about a lot of real films. And this kind of comes back to what we're talking about because he uh, talks about the movie Sisters, and he says that he thinks that Sisters is the most Nabokovian of movies, oh. which I thought was interesting. Oh. And it, it's really good. So that would be a movie, that would be a movie book I would uh, do. And also Ken Newman, his book on – his. BFI monograph on cat people is wonderful. It was one of the influences I had for how to deal with all the information. And it's just a terrific book. Those are my two. And his Nightmare Movies is interesting. He's real hard on the palm in it. Yeah, he has his likes and his dislikes in that book. Uh, and he, although in his, he revised it and in his footnotes, he comes back a little easier on the palm. So it sort of follows what you were saying before about how people are finally coming around back to thinking the palm is kind of good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting when we get to. I mean, I don't want to don't want to hurry things along or anything, but um, I think when as these uh, as these movie brats sort of reach the end of their careers and lives, it'll be interesting to see where the cuts fall because um, I feel that there'll be, you know, just the same way Chimino's been re somewhat rediscovered in in recent years. I've got a feeling people like De Palma they might they might rise. Maybe. I mean, it seems like over Lucas, at least, because it's like, I, you don't really think of Lucas as being a great filmmaker. You think of him as being the creator of the greatest blockbuster of all time. Which is a pity, because I THX 1138 is great, and uh, American Graffiti I have a lot of time for. Oh, that was him. Okay, I haven't seen THX 1138. But yeah, American Graffiti is pretty good, although again, this is a, a movie where you can see that the women haven't been as well written as they should Good point. Yeah, I haven't seen it for years. I imagine imagine it might have aged a little bit. Yeah, because what's her name? The the one who was on Laverne and Shirley, what's her name who just recently died? Um, I'm terrible with all these names. But she's fantastic. And you really feel like she should have gotten more <laughs> gotten more more to her part than it gets. Uh, do you mean Cindy Williams? Yeah, Cindy Williams. She's so good in it. Yeah, no, I agree about that sort of boys' club aspect of the the, the movie brats as well. That they were, they weren't necessarily the, uh, had, they didn't necessarily have the broadest view of life when it came to to sex and and uh, you know fifty one percent of the world's population. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I get it. Like with someone like Scorsese, is trying to like explore you know, issues of masculinity. And I actually do think that he did a good job with the with the women in Taxi Driver. Like, um, Sybil Shepherd, I think, is really terrific, especially when you compare what Schrader wanted her to be in the screenplay. Like, she's made it much more interesting in the film than she is in the screenplay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The screenplay characterizes her quite abhorrently. Yeah, it's very abhorrently. <laughs> I mean, he uses uh, obscene language to describe her. Well, listen, Joe, thanks so much for uh, talking to me about Carrie. It's given me an opportunity to to rewatch the film, and it's um, and I I, I, I learned so much reading it. I love the way you just do this sort of um, the the whole stretch of from the Stephen King genesis to to the to the influences towards the end. Um, a, a really good panorama of the of the film. Yeah, thank you. I'm really glad that you wanted to talk to me.
Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale and today I'm going to be talking to Joseph Eisenberg who has written a fascinating study on Brian De Palma's Stephen King adaptation, Carrie. Uh, we'll be going into the film quite deeply and into the book. Uh, it is available on Kindle if you follow the link in the show notes. Um, I also wanted to mention that uh, over the next month or so, I'm going to be very busy with film festivals. I'm going to a bunch of them, uh, covering them for Variety and other outlets. So I shall be, um, maybe the time of the podcast will slip a little bit. If uh, by any chance there are gaps, I'm going to try and plug them with by reissuing some old episodes, which I don't think have had the love that they deserve. Um, so apologies for that in advance, although if you haven't listened to the old episode, you might be quite relieved of the opportunity to uh, have a chance to catch up on something you haven't had an opportunity to listen to before. Um, I'd like to thank Ellie Atkins from The Music, Ali Harwood as ever for the artwork, and thank you listener for listening. But um, uh, before uh, you go, <laughs> listen to our conversation with me and Joseph Eisenberg. <laughs> 